issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, good day to you. And if you like what you hear today, please share this episode with one friend you think might like it too. Now, in last week's episode with Carrie King, which you should listen to if you haven't yet, BTW, we explored the idea that political polarization is actually in part the result of resources we need to live becoming gradually more scarce. Now, many would say that democracy brings prosperity as you only need to look at the economic state of democracies versus autocracies to see which system performs better. But is it democracy that breeds prosperity or the other way around? Now, to help answer this question, I invited Andre Sherbach of the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg. That is the one in Russia, not Florida, everybody, to discuss a paper he published on the link between diet and democratic reform. And his research shows that what a society eats can be a good predictor of democratic reforms but not necessarily the other way around. And in our conversation, we get into the data behind his work and make some interesting conclusions about how the democratic world might need to behave if it wants to remain democratic. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Andre, as I said when we first connected via email, one of the things we've been looking into in this podcast is the role, in general, natural resources play in democracy and the role they play in encouraging it or discouraging it. And in doing some research, I came across your paper, which really talks about the influence of diet on democratic reforms. And I'm very interested in learning a little bit more about that. Before we get into that, you're in St. Petersburg now, and a lot of our listeners here in the U.S., I'm sure, are curious as to how things are. So what's what's the mood like in St. Petersburg at this time? Well, of course, it's on the one hand, it's an easy question. And on the other hand, it's a very complicated question, right? Mm -hmm. And let me say that on the one hand, it looks like almost nothing is happening, right? Mm -hmm except you might see some, you know, numbers of uh, this uh, now, unfortunately, famous uh, Z symbols, but almost only, almost limited to, let's say, official posters, official, you know, police cars, or, you know, some officials like, again, policemen and, you know, state sector employees. But let me say that I almost don't see, you know, just let's say private individuals wearing these symbols or like putting poster on their personal cars, right? Okay. And it yeah, seems yeah. that it's, it's almost nothing happens. And mm -hmm. uh, some experts say that, it, that to some extent this is an intended policy of the government, just like keep things that almost nothing is happening. That's mm -hmm. business as usual. That's this war is far and away, uh, or as officials say uh, it's in Russia, special military operation. So it's far mm -hmm. and away. 
So and it brings no harm to regular Russians, and will not bring any harm to common people because it's just a special operation. It's not like a full-fledged war. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But on the other hand, of course, uh, one may see that uh, if he or she is looking deeper, that something is happening. That uh, I see that some friends of mine have left the country. Some of them thinking about it. Uh, people became a bit more nervous uh, about everything, everything what is happening, and so on. So, uh, well, let me say that I have a very mixed feeling. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I won't, I won't push any further. But I hope life stays yes. as normal as it can. So, getting, getting ahead. Then, like I said, one of the things that that brought us together is I was doing research and I came across your paper, which really talks about how the adoption of what you call the European diet is a precursor or indicative of democratic reforms to follow. And and it really seems to take the position that, you know, diet brings about reform or that improvements in diet bring about reform, but not necessarily the other way around. How do you define the European diet, because I think that's important as we get into the conversation. Well, so my definition of a European diet is the one which is rich in animal proteins. So I was working with UN data. So this is a food and agriculture organization, and it has a quite detailed so-called food balance sheets. And I was working with this data. I was running principal component analysis. So my results show that European diet uh, is the one which is rich in meat, dairy products, alcohol beverages, and sugar, and is very low in cereals and uh, starchy roots. Mm-hmm. So roughly speaking, this is uh, you know meat, cheese, glass of wine, and a dessert, right? So this is a European diet. And when I was looking, the top countries on these factor scores uh, were european countries right like you know norway denmark iceland switzerland croatia austria i did a repeated analysis for various time points and uh, so the results hold uh, for for all those time points and we have uh, a bulk of studies which show that uh, this is the most prestigious food items uh, the most demanded and uh, people were uh, you know, wanting to have more, you know, meat, dairy products, and so on. And when you, because the one thing in your paper too is you do study these countries over the course of time. Did you find that there was an increase in democratic reforms within existing democracies? I would say that things are a bit more complicated. So I do believe that the type of diet uh, that we can measure is a proxy for expanding middle class. And the theory of democracy, many studies on democracy argue that the expansion of the urban middle class, which is well-fed and well-educated, is a a prerequisite for cultural change in society and institutional change in society. So because if people suffer from malnutrition, usually they have a very low education just due to many reasons. Uh, due to many reasons, because of, well, malnutrition negatively affects cognitive skills, right? People prefer spend more time not on education, but on, you know, earning additional dollar, 
uh, to buy, you know, additional piece of bread, roughly speaking, it is a negative factor. And uh, right. I'll try to, to argue that probably it's not diet per se. So, so if you eat additional steak, it doesn't bring more democracy to you, but it may <laughs> serve as a proxy uh, for expanding middle class, right? Because, well, European diet is a diet of middle class, like almost everywhere. I believe that if you go to the to Shanghai city, you will see that, you know, uh, young urban professionals try to eat more meat, drink more wine, try to consume more dairy products if they can, and try to eat more, you know, prestigious desserts. My argument is like this. So it, it's a proxy which allows us to measure the size of the middle class. I understand now. So getting back to what you said, eating more steak won't bring about more democracy, which I think there are some people in Texas who might disagree with you, Andre, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll move ahead. Maybe. But what it, what it does indicate is that countries are becoming more, are becoming wealthier. There's a middle class that's expanding. And as a result, you can expect that they're going to ask for institutional reforms yeah. as a result. Is that right? Yes, I also do believe that uh, uh, this uh, causal link may work in the opposite way either. So right now I'm trying to uh, reframe this project, not on diet and democracy, but on diet and autocracy. And it seems to me that autocrats or dictators, uh, they are interested in stagnation of uh, people incomes, right? just to prevent the expansion of the urban middle class, right? Uh, and they force, so they want to, you know, downgrade the diets, like making people to think not about, you know, the quality of governance, roughly speaking, not about, you know, the quality of public goods and, you know, services, but about, you know, earning additional dollar to buy additional piece of bread. Right. And so they are, you know, the working, not titles, so the working hypothesis that it's, uh, it might be the case of so-called um, managed poverty policy. So that autocrats are not interested in overall economic growth. So they're interested only in their maximization of their rent seeking policies. And they also they don't care, you know, common people. Of course, they don't want people to die from starvation. So malnutrition is also a problem. And we see that in some countries, there are reports about, you know, some food subsidies programs or just, you know, f free food distribution programs and so on so far, right? So it's that, that's why I believe it's, you know, managed poverty so people should know, uh, you know, go down but they also should not go up. Almost middle class, almost middle class. Understood. And where do you see that happening right now? Well, so this is the post-Soviet space, and oh, especially sure. this is true for uh, resource-rich post-communist states like mm -hmm. Russia, Kazakhstan, maybe Azerbaijan, maybe Belarus. And so the idea is that, you know, autocrats are not interested in expansion of their urban middle classes because, well, they are troublemakers because they uh, uh, may claim for some, you know, for, for political representation, for political demands, uh, for uh, political reforms and so on. So autocrats prefer to deal with their poor, but not with the, you know, independent, uh, you know, citizens 
who believe that they have some form of autonomy uh, from the states, from the government. And uh, again, if we go back to the European political theory tradition, you may find many times this, uh, this formula like uh, well-fed and educated people. So people were thinking about you know, education and nutrition as something you know, very close to each other as just one element, you know, with two, you know, sides. One of the things I, I, that stuck out at me in your paper was there was a comparison between the Netherlands and Saudi Arabia yeah. in terms of diet, diet, because the Netherlands and Saudi Arabia have about the same per capita income, but yeah. a much different diet. Can you talk about that? Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting observation. So I tried to explore, again, these two countries, Netherlands and Saudi Arabia, for 2015, and results are the same. And we see that, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, they have uh, various, you know, identical income per capita and uh, calorie intake per capita, almost identical. Uh, but uh, the share of uh, dairy products and meat uh, is, uh, if I'm correct, twice as higher than in Saudi Arabia, and. Mm-hmm. Like a half of daily calorie intake in Saudi Arabia is uh, cereals or, let's say, bread. And it's just 22% in the uh, Netherlands. And, well, I think it's uh, very informative about income redistribution in those two countries. So when income redistribution is not fair, so people can't get a piece of meat and a piece of cheese, Right. Uh, but, you know, a fair, in more or less fair income redistribution gives, gives us uh, the picture which is rather close to the Dutch case. It sounds like as I'm, as I'm talking to you and getting back to something you said earlier, it sounds like in a lot of ways the diet reflects how just the soci- society is as a whole in terms of distributing income and in terms of of distributing wealth. And if there's a large consumption of, again, animal proteins, dairy, things like that, that indicates that wealth is more evenly distributed. Is that, am I following you correct? Yes, you got it correctly. Again, if you look at this relationship between, you know, diet and, let's say, democracy, in a historical perspective, uh, we will see that uh, for centuries, if not for millennia, so there were two different types of diet in societies. So like, you know, poor people diet, uh, which was like just almost uh, like a cereal, cereals uh, intake, right? Calorie intake. And, you know, elite diets, what could be rich in meats uh, or fish and other prestigious products. And uh, this, you know, gap existed for centuries. Uh, and uh, people always uh, were dreaming about, you know, narrowing this gap between, you know, the rich and the poor to allow like a similar diet uh, as, as the rich can afford, right? One thing I found interesting, too, is in your paper, you talk about what the economy looked like before diet improved in Europe. And can you talk about that, too? Because I think that that was very interesting to me, and I think it would be interesting to the listener as well. Well, uh, I would present it as a very interesting puzzle, uh, because this is the question about uh, causality between, let's say, modernization and diet improvement. So what mm-hmm. uh, causes what? 
The first guess, of course, that modernization leads to improvement in, in living standards. So people start earning more, and therefore they immediately spend their incomes to better nutrition. And, well, this is very simple. Uh, this is just, uh, you know, a basic intuition. However, uh, we find quite many papers and quite many, quite many scholars who argued that uh, the opposite causality is possible. They argue that vice versa, the improvement in diet uh, led to modernization. That, let's say, before the Industrial Revolution, before the improvement in the diets, there were so many people who just could not work, as who were excluded from the labor market because their calorie intake, their daily calorie intake was so low, they just could not work. They could not do any, uh, any job. And therefore, so they made their earning uh, through alms and through, well, everything they could find just on the streets. However, uh, when uh, we see the radical improvement in diets, all those people uh, could be now included to the labor force. They could increase their labor productivity. Better nutrition also leads to better cognitive skills. So uh, people could start you know, learning. This is multidimensional positive effect on economic growth right, and economic modernization. Right. So, but then the question is how this diet, how this improvement in diet uh, happened. Well, and I have some uh, speculative propositions I can sh I can share with you. That first, interestingly, I believe that this is uh, this is some sort of natural uh, lottery. That some you know populations uh, were lucky enough to be settled in you know more. Let's say, I, would, I don't want to say, you know, successful, I don't want to say beneficial, but, you know, let's say better environments where they could rely on uh, much more diverse diets. And surprisingly, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is Europe. For example, we see among European populations uh, unprecedented, unprecedentedly high share of uh, lactose tolerance. So across the globe, about just about one third of population can consume uh, milk and most of dairy products after, let's say, you know, after infancy. But in Europe in general, this is about two thirds. And in some countries, this is, you know, 95% like, and this is Northwestern Europe, Scandinavia, Netherlands, Belgium, UK, northern parts of Germany, and so on. And therefore, well, uh, dairy products are very rich in animal proteins, and they are quite cheap, uh, let's say, compared to meats. I'm sorry. I want, I want to stop you right there just to make sure that the listener heard that, because that was really, that was another thing that really jumped out at me, was the fact that Europeans, on the, Europeans amongst the world, how, how do I put this? Europeans are unique in the fact the majority of Europeans can consume lactose. And so can consume. Yes, that's correct. Of course, you know, this area uh, is not only limited to Europe. So we also may find such populations, let's say, in the Arab Peninsula. Some Arab people, they also have a relatively high level of lactose tolerance. Also, we may find some limited areas in, uh, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, but really very limited. And probably 
also in very uh, limited areas in Asia. But in general, so this is so the you know global standard is one third, like 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 thirty five percent roughly speaking. But in Europe, it's about sixty five percent, right? And there are there is uh, you know huge literature on this. So why human populations differ and vary uh, in the level of lactose tolerance? Well, that's a very interesting literature. So like three or four hypotheses, competing hypotheses. So if you're interested, you can dig in it. But so yeah. I just want to say that, well, uh, European populations, they had an advantage. And also, if you consume a lot of dairy products, it means that you leave, you know, some land for pastures. You don't, and there is always trade-off, trade-off in traditional agriculture. You know, arable land, where you can plant some, you know, additional cereals, you know, vegetables or whatever, or you leave it, or you keep it for pastures, for for livestock, right? And uh, we see that in Europe, I don't want to say optimal balance, but let's say a very, uh, you know, promising balance between, you know, uh, livestock and, you know, other forms of agriculture. And therefore, Europeans were eating more meat, let's say, compared to Chinese in the Middle Ages. Because in China, there was another strategy uh, to, to, you know, increase arable land as much as possible, uh, to plant, you know, more rice, more other cereals, uh, and so on and so forth. And therefore, so the, uh, their diets were more limited uh, in this sense. One of the things you had mentioned in your paper, too, is that even in China, there are that, that what was farmed influenced the way they structured themselves socially or culturally. So you mentioned how in parts of China that farmed wheat as opposed to rice, they were more individualistic, whereas rice farmers were more collectivist. Does, does what they grow, does, does that have an influence on their outlook as well? Well... Let me say that this model is quite simple. So if we, let's say, again, go back to, you know, to history, and and we will find only some traditional agrarian societies on the political map, right? And those all those societies were depending on the agriculture. And so agriculture depends on the environment. And for example, so you cannot plant, you know, sugarcane in Netherlands, right? Because, well, yep. you will produce nothing, literally. And uh, and so on, and uh, so the you know the climate, geographic conditions they determine you know what you can you know plant, what you can produce on this land, right? And uh, to some extent, for traditional societies, uh, this was one of the most uh, important you know uh, issues. So and and depending what you do produce. Uh, you know, the social organization of the agricultural sector uh, is developing. So let's say in some areas, this is forced labor, but in some areas, this is not. And uh, it's uh, quite a common comparison, let's say, between the wheat production and sugarcane production. So everywhere where you see sugarcane production, uh, there is a legacy of, of, of forced labor. Maybe slavery, maybe not, but definitely it's not you know, just the pure market forces, right? But where you find wheat, or let's say potatoes, you are not likely to find, you know, forced labor. You are not likely to find, uh, you know, deeply rooted slavery, right? 
because it is believed that uh, wheat can be produced also uh, quite effectively by individual farms. And it's not so collectivistic. But of course, yes, in like in a global perspective, it looks more like an exception, not like a general rule. But everywhere you find uh, sugarcane, for example, uh, you find forced labor. And uh, yes, there was a very nice paper in the science magazine where uh, scholars conducted a survey uh, on, you know, some values and cultural orientations among students from uh, southern regions and northern regions. And people from the north uh, tended to be more individualistic. So they also used instrumental variable. So the legacy of wheat production or legacy of rice production. And the explanation was that, well, rice production is associated with the higher levels of collectivism, while wheat production, uh, again, so based on the idea that uh, uh, wheat can be produced by individual farms, wheat is associated with the higher levels of individualism. Okay. Uh, and it brings us back again to these historical legacies of uh, agricultural traditional societies, and we can look at uh, social institutions which were rooted in this, you know, climatic and to some extent geographic conditions. You know, in the United States, we like to believe that it's democracy that ultimately leads to wealth. So we establish a fair system, laws are applied equitably, everybody has the same rights, and with that comes prosperity. It sounds like what you're saying is almost the opposite in a way. That in a lot of cases, what we would consider, you know, your standard Western liberal democracy is in a lot of cases a result of environment, in a lot of cases a result of luck. Is that fair? To some extent, because we cannot say that we that we handle just one, uh, you know, uh, key reason which may explain, you know, social development. So uh, even if you find the, the one which may explain additional, you know, percent variation, this is a great success. So here I'm not saying that I'm, you know, diet determinist. No, no way. Or I'm a ge okay. geographic or geoclimatic determinist. No way. Right. But uh, I believe that my contribution, if I complete this project and come up with a good publication, is to suggest another angle uh, on this. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I'm saying that. Uh, that to some extent, geography matters, right? Mm. So geography may explain institutional choices, right? Why diet is interesting, things to discuss? Because it's a micro level of modernization, because we are all, as you know, individuals, we consume food every day, probably three times, and therefore, so every day we make our choices, Right. To some extent, these choices are inherited by, you know, our income, our, you know, education, our culture and so on. But this is a micro level. And so uh, my contribution to this discussion is also that we have to look not only on macro level, some, you know, institutional changes, uh, some, you know, uh, uh, critical junctures, some, you know, big events. But this is also what, you know, common people on the micro level those decisions they make every day, right? Mm -hmm. We should not only look at the, I don't know, the great revolution in England in uh, 1688, a glorious, glorious revolution in England, which triggered the process of democratization in the UK. And uh, this 
it is presented usually as, uh, you know, a non-zero-sum game between uh, various elite groups in uh, English society. But also, so let's look at, you know, micro levels. So, and then we will find that uh, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, a lot of Englishmen were well-fed, uh, well-educated. So the literacy rates were quite high, right? And we should not forget mm-hmm. about this micro level, the level of common people. So also we may find that good nutrition is associated with the lower fertility rates and lower in infant mortality rates. This causation is quite clear. So if uh, parents realize that with better nutrition, more children will survive, probably they, sh- they should not give birth to more children, but instead of this, they will try to invest in their children's human capital, education. And a well-educated person and a well-fed and well-educated person will have uh, higher labor productivity and probably will be able to earn more than without education. So, And on the macro level, probably this is more effective and more productive for economy as a whole. It's again about, you know, accumulation of human capital, but not from top down, but from bottom up, let's say like this. As you're talking, I can't help but think about China, which you mentioned at the beginning. And and over the past couple decades, consumption of, of what were luxury items like meat or, or pork as a prime example have, have increased. So if we take your hypothesis and we apply it to China, could we expect that the populations there are going to start to demand more democratic reforms as, again, as they get better fed, as they get wealthier? Oh, well, it's a good question. Uh, let's say again. So uh, it's, a, it's a proxy, right? So it allows us to measure the expansion of the urban middle class. The optimistic scenario will support this expectation that if the middle class, urban middle class uh, continue expanding, uh, so there will be more well-fed, well-educated people uh, who would prefer not to immigrate, let's say, to the United States and to the UK, but to stay in China and start demanding, you know, step by step more civil liberties, more political rights. And it will be also followed by the cultural change. So middle classes usually are more emancipated in, in many ways. And one day we will see some institutional changes in China. But this is only an optimistic scenario. The pessimistic scenario will be much more different. That autocrats know what's going to happen with their urban middle classes. And for them, it's going to be trade-off between economic growth you know, and social prosperity and you know, uh, their power. So as I said, some sort of you know, managed poverty policies, uh, more repression, uh, maybe some, you know, public opinion leaders will be, if not repressed, but to force into immigration and so on so far. It sounds like to, to get back to the Saudi Arabia example, it sounds yeah. like the government has to make a decision as to how wealth and power are distributed as well. And those two have to move together in order for these yeah. reforms to happen. Yes. So there is no, you know, uh, a highway which connects, you know, any uh, point A with point B, which is, you know, happy and with democracy. So it's always a very complicated story. If we take a country like China, which has obviously committed itself to autocracy or Saudi Arabia, for example, if we take those out of the equation, 
and we maybe take other countries where populations are underfed. Is there is there a lesson for those who are looking to promote democratic reforms worldwide here? Is Do you feel like maybe the route to a more democratic world is to really focus on the areas where hunger is a problem? Well, let me say like this, that uh, I will never believe in hungry democracies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that people who really suffer from malnutrition, they, uh, of course, are thinking mostly about how to get additional food, right? And uh, they are not about uh, uh, believing in, you know, the magic of free and fair elections <laughs> and so on and so far. So I will not, I do not believe in hungry democracies. Uh, let me say like this, because it uh, limits the idea of democracy only to elites and neglects, you know, just this micro level, uh, like common people who probably uh, don't care anything, but, you know, so what they may find in their fridge if they have the one, right? Uh, but uh, but again, I'm not deterministic. So I'm not an, an economic determinist arguing that, you know, economic growth first and democracy second, right? I'm not arguing like that. But me, let me say that, well, uh, definitely this micro level, this social level, the society level matters. Probably it's not about, you know, wealth per se. Probably it's about more fair income redistribution, right? Probably it's about the quality of governance, because I do believe that in our world, in contrast to many previous expectations, famine is not, you know, economic or geographic problem. It's not about, you know, low quality of arable lands or low quality of agricultural technologies. Uh, No, it's a pure political problem, I do believe, that it's not a problem at all for any government uh, to bring cheap, affordable food, even for very poor people, uh, to any country. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. And if you didn't and could keep that between us, that would be wonderful. You can also find a link to Andre's paper in the show notes, either in the show description in your podcast player or on ydhty.com, your choice. Now, Andre's research tells us a couple of things. The first is that better nutrition leads to more workforce participation, which leads to greater economic growth which leads to increased wealth, and with that, an even better diet. Now, the second is that it's the growth of the middle class that ultimately leads to democratic reform. And when wealth is spread more evenly and people have their basic needs met, they demand more in terms of self-governance, but they also demand more in terms of a broader share of wealth and justice. And this gives us a couple of lessons to walk away with. The first is to think about what we could gain if the world were better fed. You know, right now, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 to 700 million people worldwide are undernourished. And think of what the world could be like if these people didn't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. The second is that income inequality matters because as people become more insecure about being able to meet their basic needs, they become less concerned with things like civil liberties. And as we learned in our conversation with Carrie King last week, 
more likely to form outgroups and engage in political or civil conflict. And from recent episodes, I'm coming to the belief that the polarization we see in this country and the conflicts we see abroad are people and political systems reacting to resource scarcity in very predictable ways. And I'm interested in understanding how we can expect these systems, and especially American democracy, to react as we deal with issues around climate change or how we deal with a potential disruption in the food supply. And I'm going to be speaking with a few people in upcoming episodes who could shed some light on this subject. The last thing I'll leave you with is a repeat message from last week's episode. Wealthy nations, especially the United States, have to get used to consuming less and have to build their economies less around what's purchased and consumed and more around the general concept of well-being. And we have a $58 billion weight loss industry for food we don't need to eat and a $50 billion storage industry for stuff we didn't need to buy. So I think there is some fat we can trim there. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.